Our scripture lesson tonight comes from 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel 25, hear now the word of the Lord. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste, and took two hundred loaves, and two skins of wine, and five sheep already prepared, and five sayas of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. 
And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had been not left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him all these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michal, his daughter David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. This is the word of the Lord. First Samuel 25 is the, the center of the adventures of David. The whole narrative in this section of 1 Samuel focuses around David and Saul. And the Philistines have functioned and will function as the main foil to their relationship. But then chapter 25 tells the story of David and Abigail. What's 1 Samuel 25 doing here? Is it simply an interesting story about David that the author decided to throw in just for fun. Hey, I got this great story about David. You should hear it. That's generally not the way scripture works. And especially because in chapter 25, we are sandwiched in between the two stories of how David spares Saul. Which means that what's in between those two stories is probably the center of something important. And the story of Abigail is also carefully crafted. You can see from the outline in your bulletin that the story consists of three concentric chiasms. This is a very very carefully crafted story. And the story is 
carried by the speeches. Uh, there's, there's very little narrative where so the narrator is, is explaining things. Most of the story is carried by the dialogue. It's carried by what the characters say. And the longest and most important speech is Abigail's at the center of the chiasm, at the center of the chapter. And this chapter is the center of the story of David's adventures in the wilderness, which means that Abigail's speech is the center of this whole section of the book of Samuel. And Abigail's speech is really important. The story of Nabal and Abigail is here in, in, in this, and it's in these central episodes in 1 Samuel 24 to 26, we are going to hear what will happen to all of David's enemies. David's enemies will be destroyed, but not by David's hand. It's not because of David's might and power, but because the Lord was with David. It's not his might, it is his faith and trust in the Lord that gives him the victory. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That was true for David, so it was most powerfully true for our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is most true for us as well. Wait upon the Lord and he will accomplish his purposes for you. Uh, Part of the reason why I had us sing the song of Deborah at the beginning is because... If you think about what Jael does in this in the story of of, of Deborah and the story of, of Sisera, here you have here you have a woman who's taking takes matter into her own hands and smacks the serpent's head with as it were, uh, and here you have, but it's also through the voice of a woman, Deborah the prophetess, who is a mother in Israel, who is this is she, but Jael is not the one. She doesn't do this to benefit herself. It is, she is not, if you, think, if you think about that story, Jael is the, the wife of the ally of Sisera. And why is she doing this? Almost certainly for her people, Israel, to save them from their oppressor. And so this is where it's just fascinating in all of these stories, it is not the person directly affected who is taking vengeance. And that's really important for David to learn and for us to learn in how we think about dealing with these things. Now we start in their chapter with the death of of Samuel, which should remind us of another woman, Samuel's mother, Hannah. Hannah had prayed for the coming king, the Lord's anointed. We sang her song last week. And our text connects the death of Samuel with the death of Nabal, the fool. Now, you know, it could just be that our author is is just pointing out a factual connection. There's, hey, these two deaths happen around the same time. But the death of Samuel now winds up right here at the center of our adventures of David. And this suggests that... What God is doing in, or in how he is arranging this whole story is showing with the death of Samuel, there's a, a transition happening. With the death of Samuel, we are, we, are, we are moving from sort of David out into the wilderness. We're now, we're now at, the, at the end of that narrative of David's being taken out into the wilderness. We are now going to begin the narrative of how does David become king? 
And that's going to be the next section in the book of Samuel. And do you happen to remember, actually, as we go, we go through this, keep, keep, we'll, we'll keep seeing this in the book of Samuel, because women play really important roles in the whole story. We've seen this already. Hannah at the beginning of the book. And Michal was the one who loved David and married David and sort of brings David into uh, Saul's family. And then now we see Abigail. We'll continue to see women all the way through the rest of Samuel and uh, not always in positive roles. Michal will get a negative role here coming up. But there's... But women play crucial roles in the story. David has now fled to the wilderness of Paran. The way that the way the text suggests it, it says all Israel g- gathered to bury Samuel. So it, w- it would actually suggest that Saul is there and quite possibly David is there, I mean, because it says and then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. You might you might wonder why would Saul let David get away? Well. <laughs> um, this is the burial of Samuel. There's going to be, what's the way to say it? Bad juju if you try to do something around you know, the, the burial of, of God's prophet. If you're, if you're trying to take advantage of that to go take out David, Saul, Saul himself may have had enough restraint to not do it then. But now David goes down to the wilderness of Paran. And, and then we're told about this man. Notice that he's not named yet. There was a man. In Ma'on, whose business was in Carmel. Uh, Ma'on and Carmel are mentioned in Joshua 15 in connection with Ziph. We've heard about the Ziphites already and we'll hear about them again in the next chapter. These are cities in the inheritance of Judah in the south of the land. And uh, it, appears, it appears that Carmel uh, was a fruitful land. Uh, Josiah would later have vineyards in this region. And so this man's sheep are pasturing in the wilderness of Paran, and now they are coming back north to Carmel and Ma'on. Uh, Carmel here is not to be confused with Mount Carmel in the far north, but this is in the, in the southern region, region of, of Judah. And only in verse 3 does Nabal get mentioned after his business is described. Because this is a man who's all about business. His business is what matters to him. His affairs are what he is devoted to. He is so preoccupied with his business that we forgot to tell you his name. Oh, right. The name of the man was Nabal. Now, at this point, everybody starts laughing. Because Nabal means fool. It's like, the name of the man was fool. (laughs) What? Yes. And the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Now, you might think, Calebite, well, that sounds good. He's a descendant of Caleb. Caleb was one of the two faithful spies. Now, you see, Nabal does not live up to his ancestor's character, but he does live up to his ancestor's name. Caleb means dog. And Nabal is a dog, harsh and badly behaved. But his wife, Abigail, is described as discerning and beautiful. Actually, two words that were used earlier in Samuel to describe David. David is described in in both chapter 16 and chapter 17 as beautiful. Uh, I know, it usually says handsome when it's describing men. It's the same word, so let's just keep it there. David was beautiful. He was a beautiful man. 
And then in 1 Samuel 18, it says four times that David acted wisely, that he acted with discretion, with discernment. And so this, the same word that's used now to describe Abigail has been used to describe David. In other words, David has met his match. My dear friend Sharon Covington refers to Abigail as the patron saint of abused wives. But while her husband is harsh and badly behaved, she does not act like a victim. There's nothing in her demeanor or tone in this passage that suggests that she thinks of herself as helpless or even that she's afraid of her husband. Why are there so many remarkable women in the pages of Scripture? I mean, we could say by the grace of God, and that would be very true. But it's worth asking, what sort of culture produces a Naomi, a Hannah, an Abigail, or for that matter, a Ruth? And remember, Ruth is a Moabite, so it's not even a Christian culture that produces Ruth. What is it? How is it that these cultures function that is what that goes into shaping these strong women? People sometimes refer to ancient cultures as patriarchal, and that may be accurate, but when I listen to modern people talk about patriarchy, that's not the way ancient culture worked. Modern people talk about patriarchy as a world in which men are over women. That's not Abigail's world. Nabal's servants understand very well that their master is a fool. And so they turn to Abigail for wisdom and protection. As the wife of Nabal, as the wife of the regional lord, she has power over all the men in her community except her husband. Well, and then sometimes even him. David seems to think that he needs 400 men in order to overwhelm Nabal. That suggests that Nabal probably has at least 100 men at his command. It probably suggests a community of 800 to 1,000 people who are under Nabal's protection. That means there are 1,000 people in this community who look to Abigail to make things right. So, yes, she's trapped in an abuse of marriage. But in another sense, she herself is a powerful woman who has the ability and the calling to protect those under her care. And you see her do that very well. Now, this is part of where ancient culture and modern culture make it difficult to translate between cultures. Because the individualism of our culture means that when each individual is treated as an isolated unit, then what is marriage? It's when two isolated units connect. And now these two people have their own little family all by themselves. This is why, actually, it's a whole lot easier in one sense to have an abusive family than in, in, an, in a world where everybody's isolated. Because if you're living in the ancient world, you can't actually function just the two of you off by yourself. You need a community in order to do anything. When people are interconnected in a complex web of relationships, it's a lot more difficult to get away with it. Now, it's also you can also wind up with people who have a lot more power and can do a lot more damage in larger communities too. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not that this was an ideal world where everything is great. It's rather... It's more complicated to sort of for a, sort of for the abuser to control the abused in a complex web of relationships, 
And the other part of it is that in American culture, there's such an emphasis on everybody being equal that there's not really room for complicated relationships of authority. The older language of superiors, inferiors, and equals sounds strange to us, but because when we talk about authority, it tends to be absolute. A is over B. So and that's where if you say, and if you say it, oh, the husband is over the wife. Well, um, the husband is head, yes, but what happens when the wife knows more about a situation than the husband? Well, then, that, the, way, the way that our larger catechism actually talks about relationships, talks about that superior, inferior, and equal aren't absolute personal statuses. It can be in, in gifts. It can be in, in matters of, of age. It can be in matters of, of you know, so the same two people can be superiors, inferiors, and equals at different, in different respects at the same time. So that's where, I mean, my, in, 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 when it comes to my son William, I mean, he's, I'm, I'm his father. In that respect, I'm his superior. But if we're working on a carpentry project, <laughs> he's my superior. And I better just listen to what he says and do what he tells me because that's just not a good idea for me to be telling him what to do when it comes to carpentry. So that's where... It, if I insist on my positional superiority as father to get my way, I would be a nabal. I'd be a fool to do that. And that's where we need, we need to have a more complicated view of authority than just simple, ah, I'm in charge here. Well, David hears that Nabal is shearing sheep. And so he sends ten young men, ten servants, with a message of peace. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. And we've protected your sheep and your shepherds in the wilderness. Now please give us something. Now, this is a request for hospitality which conceals a demand. Now, part of it is, again, cultural, cultural differences. Ancient Near East operates in what's called a gift exchange economy, not a contract economy. There was no contract stating that David will protect Nabal's shepherds and then Nabal will pay David X amount. Rather, this is David has provided a gift to Nabal. He has, out of the goodness of his heart, protected Nabal's shepherds and sheep out in the wilderness. And there's an expectation that goes along with this gift. I will protect your shepherds, and if you accept this protection, then you are obligated now to provide something, to provide hospitality to my men. And David's words are, are very respectful, even identifying himself as your son, David. And But Nabal, who... Um, this has been going on for long enough that Nabal had every reason to know it was going on. This is not the first time Nabal has heard about this. Nabal is well aware that David and his men have been protecting his shepherds and his sheep. And Nabal is basically flouting the, the cultural expectations of his time. And, so, and, and, and he even makes David's servants wait for the answer. This is a good way to intimidate. Ah, make them wait. Make them sit. Make them stew. Let's see how long he... And if he makes them wait for a while, and then finally he answers, Who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. 
you can almost hear this in the same tone as when Pharaoh said, who is the Lord, when Moses said, let my people go. Why should I listen to you? Who do you think you are? Nabal has no intention of siding with the son of Jesse. Plainly, Nabal sides with Saul, or at least that's his excuse. In fact, Nabal is only concerned with himself and his own things. You can hear it in his voice in verse 11. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? The fool seeks only his own kingdom, his own wealth and estate. He does not seek first the kingdom of God. Now, David's response may surprise us. David has been patient with Saul, the Lord's anointed. But when scorned by the brute Nabal, David appears to be ready to take out his frustrations on this fool. So David arms 400 men for battle and heads toward Nabal. Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants warns Abigail of what is happening. And you can, you can hear in his, his words, there's no point in going to Nabal. Nabal is a worthless man. He's a son of Belial. Now, we've heard this phrase before. It was used of the sons of Eli in chapter 2. It was used of those who opposed Saul in chapter 10. And Hannah had insisted that she was not a daughter of Belial back in chapter 1. She was not a worthless woman. You cannot reason with a son of Belial. No point in talking to him. So I came to you, because you, Abigail, are the one who can do something about this. And so Abigail takes matters into her own hands and sends a present to David. Now, her gift is fit for a king. 200 loaves. Now, just, you gotta, you gotta think about what I said earlier about there's, there's, there's like a thousand people probably un, under his, because she's able in just a morning's time to gather 200 loaves and, uh, and two skins of wine, five sheep, already prepared, five sayas of parched grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, two hundred cakes of figs. She's got, this is, this, is, this is a kingly present that she's able to collect. Oh, and by the way, we'll still have plenty for the feast tonight, and Nabal won't even notice this is missing. So she's got an immense amount of food that she can bring on short notice. But as you watch Abigail in this story, you realize that Abigail's power in this story is very much womanly power. It's why I've entitled the sermon, Lady Wisdom. Abigail embodies what Proverbs 1-9 through says about Lady Wisdom. And for that matter, she very strongly resembles the Proverbs 31 woman at the end of the book. After all, even when Abigail acts in defiance of her husband and brings David food for his men, she does so in order to do good to her husband, to protect him and his household from certain death, even insisting that David should kill her instead of her husband. She is an excellent example of someone who waited upon the Lord and so was ready to act when the time came. She has... Sort of when, when, when the servant comes to her, when the young man comes to her and says, you're the only one that can act, she's like, yep, okay, now's the time. And she acts. 
And only now, as, as we approach Nabal's village, and as, as David and his men are coming down, she, she has come down under cover of the mountain. In other words, she's got her scouts. We, we, keep, we keep seeing this all through these stories. Saul has his spies and scouts looking for David, and David got his scouts, and he all, and Abigail has her scouts. Okay, which way are they coming? Okay, I, I'll sneak down around this way and, and get, so you, there's all this sort of espionage going on in this story. But, you know, okay, I see where we, only now do we hear what David had said previously. Now David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him and he has returned me evil for good. And this is where probably verse 22 is actually a self-maledictory oath. Uh, God do, because the, the Septuagint renders this differently. It says, God do so to David and more also. In other words, may God strike me down if I do not strike down all the males of that fool. Now, male is not exactly a very literal translation here. The phrase here is those who piss against the wall. Uh, the image is of someone who can stand up as he does his business, which is why the ESV says male, but there's actually a second image that gets missed if you just translate it male, because what sort of creature pisses against walls? Dogs. Calebites. So this is the picture. Basically, the, he is going to bring vengeance against the Calebites. He's going to bring vengeance against this fool. Now, Abigail comes to David, and she, she treats him as if he were already king. She bows before him as a supplicant, and her words are full of humility and submission. She refers to him as my Lord 14 times in eight verses. She speaks as one who knows that her power is found in her words, not her sword. She comes speaking as one who is speaking to the king and asking him to hear. And she says, in effect, don't pay attention to that son of Belial, that worthless fellow, the same term used for Eli's sons, that fool Nabal, he's aptly named. I should know, I have to live with him. But the Lord has sent you, has sent me to you to restrain you from becoming like my husband. You are the Lord's anointed, and it is beneath you to act like Saul or Nabal. Remember how you defeated Goliath with a sling? Well, may the lives of your enemies be slung out as from the hollow of a sling. That's what God's going to do to your enemies. Now, this speech is the center of the passage. And this passage is the center of the adventures of David, which means that Abigail's speech is the heart of the whole narrative as Abigail declares the word of the Lord in saying, here is what God has promised to do for you. In her opening statement, she offers to bear the guilt of her husband. And she says, I, I wasn't there, I did not see the young men, but I, I will take the guilt upon myself. In her central admonition, she swears by the Lord and by David's soul that she is the agent of Yahweh's deliverance. Notice how she says this in verse 26. Now then, my Lord... As Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, because Yahweh has restrained you from blood guilt. How has he restrained you from blood guilt? Because I'm here. Because Yahweh has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. What is she saying? 
You were about to bring blood guilt upon yourself through slaughtering Nabal's men, but now Yahweh has restrained you through my voice, which you are going to obey. <laughs> I mean, she is commanding the Lord's anointed. This is one courageous woman. She has accepted the sin of her husband upon herself, and she brings a guilt offering to David. This present that she brings is effectively a guilt offering to make atonement for her husband. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. Now, the Lord has not yet said the next line. The Lord says this to David through the voice of Abigail. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. This is going to be, this is, if you think about what's going to come up in 2 Samuel, when David wants to build a house for the Lord, God says to David, no, it's not that you will build a house for me, I will build a house for you. Well, Abigail said it first. Abigail the prophetess, this is why we sang the song of Deborah, Abigail the prophetess declares the word of the Lord to David. The Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. She is seen. David has not been fighting Saul. He will only fight the battles of the Lord. He will not fight his own battles. And she's sort of like, whoa, wait a second. You're about to make a tragic mistake. You're about to fight your own battle. You do that, it's over. If you want to be the Lord's anointed, if you want to be the next king, if you want to be the king after God's own heart, you can't fight your own battles. Reminding David of his battle with Goliath, she reminds him that it was the Lord who delivered him from Goliath, and it will be the Lord who will deliver him from all his enemies. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of Yahweh your God. Here's a woman who knows how to use words. The life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of Yahweh your God and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Do you remember what God did when you went up against Goliath? Do you really trust him? Do you really believe that God will do what he has promised? If so, then you have nothing to fear from my nasty husband. And when the Lord has done good to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself. You cannot save yourself. You need God to save you. Oh, and furthermore, when God does to my husband, as he will do to all your enemies, please consider me as your wife. She doesn't say that bluntly. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Because if God does to your enemies what he says he will do, then my husband will be dead soon. And I'll be a widow. Hint, hint. Where did Abigail learn to speak like this? She learns to speak like this because 
This is a culture that values the voice of Lady Wisdom. She doesn't speak like a man. She speaks as a woman. And by that, I don't mean she uses her feminine charms. There's nothing in the text about that whatsoever. Our text focuses on her words. And sure, in theory, a man could say all the same words. But these words only sound the way they do because they come in a woman's voice. Uh, This is where we need to be careful in our culture because we've oftentimes discounted a woman's voice so that her words are taken less seriously because it was a woman who said it. And then we've also got this other thing going on where we try to make all words just exactly the same and so it doesn't make a difference whether you're a man or a woman. And whether, whether you go either way you go, that's not, that's not good. What does it mean to value the voice of Lady Wisdom? Well, we're, we're getting a chance here in the book of Samuel to see this. There are several women who speak in this book. We've heard from Hannah. We've now heard from Abigail. There will be the, the wise woman of Tekoa who will advise David. The wise woman of Abel advises Joab. Bathsheba will advise Solomon. This is the culture that will produce the book of Proverbs, where the father tells his son to spend his life with Lady Wisdom. And in the Song of Songs, the bride sings to her friends about her beloved. In such a world, you ignore a woman's voice at your peril. Now, it's worth noting that the book of Samuel will deal with with women's flaws too. Uh, Saul will consult a medium in a couple chapters which leads him to the house of Dame Folly and Dame Folly's house always ends in the grave. So there's, this is not saying that women are, are faultless but it's saying that when women speak with the, in, in, the, in the person of Lady Wisdom you should be listening. And David listens. And David blesses Abigail with a threefold blessing, just as his message to Nabal had been a threefold shalom. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, your wisdom, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. He has heard her, and he demonstrates this by summarizing the main points of what she just told him. And and he says, yes, you have spoken wisely and truly, and I thank you and I bless you because blessed be the Lord who sent you this day. Abigail has reminded David that it is not his job to save himself. He is called to deliver Israel, but he is not called to deliver himself. In matters pertaining to himself, he must wait upon the Lord. And David swears an oath that her words have been God's agent. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you? How did he restrain me? Through your words. Exactly what you said. You were, if, if, if she had not come, by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one wall pisser. Yes, he uses the same language in front of a lady. The Calebites would be dead dogs by morning if it was not for Abigail. And David receives the present that she brought, the gift. And he said to her, Go up in peace, in shalom, to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice. David obeys Abigail. Submission is not a one-way street. 
when someone in a position of authority makes a bad decision, then someone in a subordinate position needs to say something. And the one in authority needs to obey the voice of the subordinate. Obedience is not simply a sort of, this goes back to what I said earlier about, we oftentimes think of, oh, well, if, it's, if the person's in authority, then they always, no, it's not that easy. It's not that simple. All human relationships are far more complicated. And David obeys Abigail because she has spoken in the voice of Lady Wisdom. So Abigail goes home and finds her husband feasting like a king. The anointed one is sitting in the wilderness, Nabal, like the feast of a king, and he gets very drunk. So Abigail remains silent and waits for morning. And in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. She has discretion. She has wisdom. And so she waits for the proper time to say something. Timing is everything when you're giving somebody news that they're not going to like. But she tells him what she did. And then he has some sort of stroke or heart attack or something of the sort. And uh, when he became as a stone, that's Laban. Nabal spelled backwards. God turns Nabal upside down and backwards as his he became the fool became as a stone the Nabal became a Laban and about ten days later the Lord struck Nabal and he died Abigail's words accomplished what David's sword could not but our author wants you to understand that Abigail did not kill her husband she spoke the word of the Lord to him but it was the Lord himself who struck Nabal. It's actually the same point that David had to learn. Abigail could not deliver herself from this man. That was not her job. That would have been working vengeance with her own hand. But she could speak the word of the Lord to her husband. If the fool had repented and obeyed the voice of his wife, then her words would have brought life to the dead. But the fool did not turn from his folly, and so he was turned upside down and backward, and Nabal became Laban. Now, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he blesses the Lord for avenging him. Uh, We'll sing about this in Psalm 109 later, but Psalm 109 expresses the lesson that David learns in the wilderness from Abigail. Vengeance belongs to God. That doesn't mean that vengeance is bad. The thing we always have to keep remembering is that God never says vengeance is bad. He says vengeance is mine. Now, you've probably heard people say, oh, but in the New Testament, it's different. Well, I want you to hear what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 8. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Paul says to the Thessalonians that 
vengeance is still a good thing. It's even okay to pray that God will bring vengeance. Now, because if you think about it, what happened? I mean, th- think about all of those early Christians who were being persecuted by this guy Saul of Tarsus. How often did they pray imprecatory psalms saying, Oh God, please destroy this Saul of Tarsus guy, because he is. He, he, I, I suspect they prayed a few imprecatory psalms. And God heard their prayer and destroyed Saul of Tarsus and took vengeance on him by killing his old man and bringing a new life from the dead. Saul's repentance was, in fact, the where vengeance was wrought, and God brought about salvation. So that's if if Nabal had repented, then that would have been very successful vengeance. But in the same way, vengeance is only a good thing when you leave it in the hands of God alone. When you try to take vengeance for yourself, that that goes sideways every time. And in response, David then sends his servants to say, hey, uh, why don't you come be my wife? And Abigail says, sure. Notice, notice what this whole story has done with Abigail. She doesn't just say, oh, I just have to submit to my husband and watch my whole household get slaughtered. No, she does what is right, and God blesses her by striking down her husband himself and then giving her the anointed king as her new husband. God blesses Abigail for her speaking in the way that she does. Now, at the end of our story, we hear that David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel as a wife, and also we hear that Saul had given Michal, David's first wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, What's this story doing here? Well, Nabal is a parable, or maybe even a parody, of King Saul. Uh, Saul hasn't died yet, uh, but Saul's daughter Michal, David's wife, has been given to this other guy. But just as the fool Nabal dies, leaving all to David, so also will Saul. So also will all of David's enemies. The story of the death of Nabal is a sign of hope in the wilderness, The death of Samuel is not the end of hope. The death of the wise prophet and the death of the drunken fool come together in pointing forward to the glory of David's kingdom, the glory that is found in the one who does not seek his own, but who seeks first the kingdom of of God. And just as Abigail trusted that God would bless David, and so she could entrust her future to the Lord's Messiah, even so we are to entrust ourselves to the Lord Jesus, trusting that he will do all that he has promised. So let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us to hear your voice and to put into practice the the things that you have taught us, that we might not seek vengeance, but rather that we might trust you to bring about all that you have promised, that you will make things right, and that you will accomplish all that you have purposed in in your son. And we thank you for your servant Abigail, who spoke to David your word and who gave him the, uh, who, who called him to repent 
and believe your promises when he was seeking his own ways. Help us also to repent and believe your promises that we might turn away from our sinful paths and listen to the voice of wisdom as she calls us to hear you, to fear you, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Be with us now this week and strengthen us in our, in our callings, in all that you've given us to do, that we might do all things not for our own kingdoms, but for the kingdom of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.